Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA Monthly Livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Okay, can anyone hear me now? Be a 20 second wait time while we do that. <coughs> Technological delays. <laughs> while we're waiting for the audio to come in in just a moment. And if anyway, you can just go ahead and hit when they say, Can you hear me now? Five by five, can you hear me I've now? I've seen a lot of people saying, No sound, no sound. Yep. Everyone can hear me now. Okay. Oh, a so- lot of yeses. Whoa. <laughs> For those of you who can read lips, <laughs> we're going to go through that introduction one more time. <laughs> Someone says they like the telepathy, maybe you should try that a little more frequently. <laughs> Just go ahead and read me through the power of my mind. Alright, so, um, welcome to our <laughs> live stream Q&A, our 31st here on May 30th, 2021, uh, now in full sound audio, Dolby Audio. Um, and the first in our new house. <laughs> this is the first one in our new home, and as you might expect, we have some technical glitches. As usual, we'll be joined by my wife, the lovely Sarah Fowler Arthur, who will be asking questions as we go. Please get your questions in the chat window for the moderators. Try to keep them as concise, legible, and polite as possible so they can relay those on to me as we go. So, I take it everyone can in fact hear me, and we will go ahead and get started with that first question. I just want to comment. You have a comment from Trevor Nielsen. Isaac has been replaced by AI with no sound. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. Well, we had a question from last month from Superposition that we hadn't been able to get to. It said, do you think that solar power in space will supply most of humanity's energy demands? And if so, when and where? Hmm. Um, you know, in the long term, it all depends on whether or not we get something like fusion. If we do get fusion, then we have the basically endless bounty of supply that you'd be getting for something like deuterium or hydrogen, vanilla hydrogen fusion. But even then, um, solar still can potentially be kind of nice because when you're generating power, usually these half of it's going to turn into waste heat. And the nice thing about civilizations that have access to an effective infant power supply on a planet is that, um, you can support as many people on the planet as you want until you have that heat bottleneck. And since fusion would be generating about half its power as heat on planets, a power satellite beaming things down by microwave to be converted back in would be doing only about 10 to 20% of that as heat. So you might switch over to using power beaming at that point too. Um, but power satellites, I think, is probably the best way for us to be going without fusion in the meantime. And we have no way of knowing if we'll get fusion, when we'll get fusion and how economical it's going to be as a reactor. We shouldn't just assume it will be really, really cheap to do just because it's much more energy abundant. So I do think that power satellites are the way to go. We had uh, 
another compliment from Albert Jackinson. He says, I want to thank Isaac for hosting these the past two years. It's really meant a lot to me. Thank you, Albert. And he has a question as well. Good afternoon, Isaac and Sarah. Plastic became popular in the second half of the 1900s, and now graphene is talked about as the next big thing for material science. Mm -hmm. What might be next for the field? There are some other allotropes uh, besides graphene of, of, of carbon, as well as some other materials that have some super material properties, metamaterials, for instance. Graphene seems to be the kind of the one draw that I sometimes wonder if it's going to be the one that actually does a lot of the high-tech things we think about, just because... While it seems to be so good at so many things, we'll have a chance we might discover other special materials that might do one specific job better. And if it does one job just a little bit better, then that's what you use for pretty much every job. But graphene is, well, I mean, we did an episode Impact of Graphene earlier this year, maybe, or last year, probably. And uh, Evan, I'm going to mispronounce his name. Evan Schulfus, uh one of our regular editors on the show, uh, he's actually a researcher on graphene, so uh, he has shared me an awful lot of good knowledge in terms of what's going to be happy with that in the near future. And it does look like that's going to be one of those fields where, you know, we're going to start using graphene for all sorts of stuff this decade, not a decade from now. And they were wondering what you think might replace graphene in the future. No idea. I'll get a Nobel Prize if I could come up with it, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Epic Monkeys and Apes says, hey, Isaac, how do you think a digital economy might work? Uh, I mean, speaking of Nobel Prize a moment ago, I suppose that if you actually found something that was better than graphene, you could also have the option of becoming a trillionaire. So, which would be better, the you know trillion bucks or the Nobel Prize? I hate to say it, but I'd probably go with a trillion bucks. An entirely digital economy um, would be my assumption, because we already have a pretty digital economy. You'd see that probably popping up or close to it with interplanetary and then probably uh, interstellar civilizations, because that's the only way they can really send information in a no-FTL sense. We did talk about doing interstellar trade at uh, at sublight speed, but you still expect the vast majority of it was getting shipped back and forth between most systems to be raw information, data, entertainment, whatever it is. Um, virtual worlds is another example, though, because let's say you have... 5,000 different virtual wars, be it uh, you know, Middle Earth or um, I can't remember the name of the planet that uh, Warcraft set on, or Starcraft, I don't know, either, that universe. Um, but you have a bunch of different you know, virtual wars people might live in. Um, they can still trade regular commodities back and forth. They just happen to be digital. You know, they might ship oil to and from in those. Um, so I think that in the whole, we, we already have essentially an information-based economy. You always have in, in reality. Uh, that's kind of the concept of fiat currency in the first place, and generally what happens with the commodity currency, to be honest, too. So I don't know there'll really be that much different, but just, you know, on time compared to old school where it might take months to send letters of note back and forth. Plankmore asks, on the fiction science, science fiction side of things, could there be topics regarding humanity even harness the world of quantum mechanics and what it could entail? I'm sorry, say that one more time. On the side of science fiction things, could there be topics regarding humanity uh, if they even harness the world of quantum mechanics and what it could entail? I mean, I'm sure it's been done. I was just thinking, it's one of the books I was putting back up on the show today is Fantastic Voyage by Asimov, uh, which is kind of the original Let's Shrink People Down and Go Explore the Human Body one, although most of you probably know the Rick and Morty episode where they did that instead. Um... I would not expect there to really be a, a shrunken down scale that was the equivalent with with uh, with the real world. I don't really 
think of the universe as being one of those matrioska worlds where it's like a box within a box and a box and each level is parallel. You know, the uh, planetary order models of, of atoms are all wrong. You know, there's, there's no parallels there. Different emergent properties apply. But as to what a quantum scale kind of civilization might look like, uh, if you would even have such a thing, I'd say it'd probably be very chaotic and random, uh, upon the pun. Um, I mean, in a way, we kind of are that emergent property because all the rules of the normal physical chemistries and biologies are all built on the back of those statistical probabilities of quantum. So this is kind of the quantum world. We'd like to thank Dan O'Connell for his super chat. And he asks, Isaac, do you see SSTOs ever becoming a practical for LEO transport? Mm. Um... Right now, so much of the focus is on uh, reusable rockets that it's easy to kind of focus in on just that option. And obviously, I'm, I'm thinking of wanting, you know, everyone thinks of me, orbital rings. I love orbital rings. Still love them. Um, I still think that's the way we'll eventually go once we have a million people living in orbit or, you know, so much industry in place that it becomes very easy to do. I would say yes, though. I think there is definitely a role there for STOs. Um, but... Uh, we are going to have to see because, again, if you'd asked me about reusable rockets even 15 years ago, I said that was so the past and, and it was a stupid idea to pursue. So, um, you know, it's one of the examples of cases where I've just been dead wrong. <laughs> so we'll see. Speaking of rockets, I heard that if you have a spare $2.5 million lying around, you can go with Elon Musk in outer space in a few months. Is it, I, I'm trying to remember what the actual price tag was, because I know it said somebody there was like a quarter of a million with Jeff Bezos in the Blue Origins, but I had I that all the, the news article I saw said $2.5 million. Well, that might be right, too. Although maybe SpaceX maybe they're separate. upping the uh, ante on what they're going to offer. It's a good question what the price point is. Or was it Virgin Galactic? That was the ones they were thinking about having. They don't, they don't offer it yet. was thinking they could do a price tag of a quarter of a million. Um, but yeah, I mean, hey, we used to cost $50,000 a kilogram for the space shuttle program. At 41 cents being any hate mail, that's the complete cost as broken down, adjusted for inflation. Uh, but some people who like the space shuttle program or really doesn't like it have very different prices for poor launch orbits to Leo, uh, which they get very enthusiastic about. We have gotten much cheaper to orbital flight now. Um... <laughs> <laughs> What is your favorite Isaac Arthur video? This is asked by another super chat, Drew McTeague. Thank you, Drew, for your donation. Uh, well, since it's Drew asking, uh, the Spaceship Proportion Compendium. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Drew uh, actually was the first time I ever did a poll question. I, I tend to do probably about one poll-based episode a month, but it was the first time I ever did one. Uh, it was on Patreon at the time. And I asked everyone for ideas, the one that got voted. I think it was the one that got voted up, or maybe I randomly selected that we get to pick the title, and that was the Spaceship Proportion Compendium, and Drew helped edit and write that one. So, uh, And that has actually, I think that was like one of our top ten videos for the show, too, so it's one of my favorites. Um, surprisingly, not Civilizations at the End of Time, um, or uh, that was kind of a culmination video for me, so I think it was like a six-part of all these season two stuff. Uh, um, probably, actually, that's actually a pretty good one. Yeah, Spaceship Proportion Compendium. <laughs> Nicoy Green says how soon do you think we can create human level artificial intelligence hmm. um, 
there's always the problem about what we define as artificial intelligence. And I had the, uh, well, in sometime in the next month in July, I'm giving a talk to MIT Lincoln Labs about uh, human AI teaming and uh, kind of what artificial intelligence will be looking like. And I'll probably tell that in an episode afterwards. But I got to talk to one of the folks who worked there, who's uh, an expert on, on AI. And um, we had this problem of almost every time we try to define what artificial intelligence is and what human-level intelligence is, um, we see a very narrow window of AI that doesn't really probably qualify. The vast spectrum of what we want to use AI for will not be human-level intelligence. In fact, that's probably the least interesting level of artificial intelligence out there. Um, and I've completely forgotten what the question was. The question was... How, when do we get human-level AI? Um, probably this century. <laughs> but probably not quite as soon as, uh, as, as other folks who tend to be pro-technological singularity would expect. And it would probably be an uploaded human mind that we use as the baseline template. So, you know, a copy of a human mind is kind of debatable as to whether or not you think that as an artificial intelligence. Is a mind upload an artificial intelligence? And I'm sure most of you who are regulars already know my opinions on artificial intelligence not being a very good word for us to use anymore. So, um, you know, an uploaded human mind is, is, is artificial intelligence? Well... Artificial intelligence kind of describes humans pretty accurately, too, because about the most artificial thing in the whole planet. So um, it's something I do expect this century, though. So James Armstrong IV wants to know if you would be willing to clone or upload your cat at the end of their natural lifespan. You know, Flax is sitting right there. Oh. I know. You keep <laughs> drifting off and looking at him, and yeah. he keeps on batting his paw around. Yeah. Uh, uh, he, he's sitting in the middle of this new studio on the carpet like he owns the place, which for tax purposes he does. <laughs> um, let's see. I don't think it actually cloned one of my cats. Um, I, you know, again, they, even with a cat, there is not that much that's really instinctual in terms of their behavior. A lot of it's going to be early learned. And so it might be, you know, be one of those things where they sold more as a constant mind. Or I know a lot of folks who do do that sort of thing in terms of, yeah, I, mean, I don't know many folks who do that personally, but you get cat cloned, you get a dog cloned, then you can get a horse cloned, uh, probably other things too. But there's an actual real market for that stuff today. And I think the horse cloning has to do with thoroughbreds and, um, I don't know, I don't, don't get the, the horse ward very well. My sister-in-law is a horse person, so um, I myself am not. But I mean, she trains horses. Hannah trains horses. <laughs> not a centaur. <laughs> Nickum says, I heard they already have 700 people who put it down a deposit, and they think 250,000 is the high end. They're trying to get the number lower. Uh, what, for space people. launches? Mm -hmm. I, there will be a big market for it. I mean, you think about it. We've spent less than 1,000 people to space, uh, period. I mean, just ever. Less than 1,000. Um, can you find a thousand people who want to cough up a million bucks to go to space? Probably. Uh, I mean, think about it. For them, it's, you know, will you donate this money to charity kind of too? Because you're saying this is going to help out this company that's making this cheaper for everyone else down the road. So that's how you rationalize if you need to rationalize spending a million bucks to go to space. Um, as to whether or not you do it, how many millionaires are there on this planet? It's like 3% of the U.S. population alone. Um, how many people make a couple million dollars a year? Probably probably around a million around the planet. So it's a lot of folks who could potentially fork up the cash for that. And they'd thousand them a year. It should be doable. Um, hopefully that price comes summer down, vacation. <laughs> well, yeah, you'd probably be lucky if you got to spend a week there. So. <laughs> um, Deg12 says, if you take two molecules and place them a light year apart away from all other masses, how do they detect each other? 
Uh, I guess the question would be, do they recognize each other gravitically? Um, this is where we're getting the wonderful concept of virtual particles, uh, which are debatably real things, that's the name virtual. Um, I want you to imagine for the moment that they are a gajillion little particles, photons in this case, or gravitons, photons for electromagnetic force, gravitons for gravity, that kind of ooze out constantly from an object. And uh, those that actually latch onto something nearby, and those become real, and all the other ones cease becoming real. And they get weaker and weaker the further they get away from that object, and thus when they become real, they are, because you know, they're more stretched out, they exert less force. This is one way to look at how forces communicate with, uh, with each other across between objects in space and time. Um, this, of course, is not really correct, but at the same time, uh, probably the sanest and simplest version I can think of how to explain how we actually move forces between objects, but virtual particles. And in the case of where they actually exhort something on something, that's where something real is happening, otherwise they fade off into nothingness. And there's always a vast sea of uh, virtual particles coming in and out of existence. Chris Petit, has Earth ever been affected by time distortions, say from a passing black hole or other time-altering condition? Probably. I mean, there, we already have some as is. Um, time runs slower at certain parts of the planet, and, and measurably so. You would need very precise atomic clocks to measure it, and, and don't think that you can use this to like, extend out your weekend or your lifespan, but if you had an atomic clock and uh, its twin, and you set them to each other on a shelf, and then you move one to the shelf above and one to the shelf below, you'll be able to see the time run faster on the one that is higher up. If you put one on Mars, it will run actually slower. If you're wondering exactly how to calculate that very approximately, very approximately, if you figure out what the thing's escape speed is, if you were taken you know, at a given level of distance from a planet, if you figure out what the escape speed was to get free of that object, that star, that solar system or galaxy, um, and you converted that escape velocity into the old Lorentz formula for figuring out what your, your special relativity motion speed was, that would about give you your time dilation. Um, and uh, loosely. It doesn't include things like rotation very well. And um, that is how time distortion works. Has something big passed by us like a black hole? Not too close. Um, and you got to keep in mind for a star, uh, like a black hole, if it was the same mass as our sun originally, it had the same gravity as our sun as this black hole coming by, um, it's not going to distort sp you know, space-time um, any more passing by the distance the sun is from us than the sun does. So it would have to have passed very close indeed, right? Um, and we probably would have had the planet pretty badly I've wrecked by that. I've seen an air message on your camera. Is there an error message? I appear to be... I think it's lost you again. We oh, seem to God. be having issues with that <laughs> camera since moving. It Welcome to this new studio. Let's see what I happened there. I don't think it likes this new place. Oh, you, it was back? There we go. Did I disappear? I think I disappeared. All right, well, let's assume that I no longer disappeared. <sighs> the vanishing and reappearing. No. Wonderful. I've never, this is a, it's a Canon EOS camera. Um, I have a... a, a power supply in it that plugs into the outside, a uh, yep. virtual one, and uh, it looks like it just started on me again. It says EOS Webcam Utility Beta. Wow. Okay. Not sure what's up with that. All right, we're going to go to break. <laughs> so we'll be on break for a few minutes, and it's a great time to get some questions into our moderators or grab a drink and a snack. 
While we're on break though, I mentioned the elevator conundrum in our recent episode Arcology Design, the problem of how taller buildings need more and more floor space on each level devoted to elevator shafts, and that there are more parallels for horizontal motion like roads, rails, and pipes. But I also mentioned a bottleneck on shipping on and off planet, and I thought I'd explain that while we're on break. Now we could get such a bottleneck on an obvious elevator parallel, like a super tall space tower or a space elevator, but in this case I meant in terms of the heat energy released by launch and takeoff. Way back in our episode Evacuating Earth, I talked about how a Karshev 2 civilization might have billions of spaceships in a single solar system but be unable to evacuate a planet super quickly simply from all the heat of their engines, as they land to pick up things we want to evacuate, like precious relics and people. It takes about 30 million joules of energy to get a kilogram into low orbit, and that's about how much energy something landing and air breaking our atmosphere would generate, though the launch will be more expensive as you're not just breaking something's momentum by dragging friction, but spitting out a stream of hot gas that outmasses your payload and needs speeding up, which is done by burning it, while fighting atmospheric friction, which produces a lot of heat. The ratio of fuel to mass varies from fuel type, kerosene needing higher percentages than liquid hydrogen and oxygen for instance, though it is probably worth noting that you also generate heat while making liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, but even a pretty optimistic approach on fuel to orbit in terms of heat release is going to come in at 10 times more heat energy being released than the kinetic energy our object has when it finally gets to orbit, or 300 megajoules of heat per kilogram for going up by rocket. Now that's a lot of energy but minuscule compared to Earth's energy budget, which is about 500 million times that per second of sunlight coming in and leaving, so we might assume we can get away with having 2% of that budget for getting into orbit, in which case it means we can move around 10 million kilograms into Earth's orbit every second, or around a billion tons every single day. That's a lot, but in the context of an Ecumenopolis, a planet-wide city, there might be some Galactic Empire's capital like Coruscant or Trantor or Terra that would bottleneck them at probably a billion people coming and going each day. And we often envision these worlds as housing trillions of people with ships coming and going non-stop. If we're contemplating realistic Galactic Empires where there might be quadrillions of people just living in our own asteroid belt, let alone the neighboring systems of our galaxy, then a few billion tourists a day, or a trillion a year, starts meaning if your empire had a quintillion people, barely enough for a single Dyson Swarm, a billion billion folks, you would need a million years to let everyone visit once, without scorching your planet to a cinder just by letting them land and take off with themselves in a suitcase. Needless to say things like space elevators and orbital rings can help with this, but only to an order of magnitude probably. It's one more reminder just how counterintuitive the future might be when we seriously contemplate the scale of those civilizations. And with all that said, let's get back to your questions and back to our show. It does look like I'm invisible at the moment. So. We have transported Isaac back to the studio via DSL camera. Oh, so hopefully things not too crooked. Um, well, let's see. So for those who uh, who are just joining us after the break uh, and missed our original muting for the first three minutes, we also still be in the process of setting up the studio. Hence, why half our normal ornaments for the studio are just sitting there. There is my YouTube award. There's my nice teddy bear from, I can't remember the name of the company that makes the teddy bears. There's the Vermont. Vermont teddy bears. There's the big SFIA logo one of the fans made me as a woodcut. Paul, I think was his name. And there's my NSS oh, there's my NSS award. There's my teddy bear. We'll just show this off for a second if I can bring it over here without smashing the place up. So, uh, I want to thank the National Space Society for this wonderful award. Uh, and uh, I believe we're doing a ceremony for that. That was we already recorded it virtually, 
and that should be out in a couple of days on the National Space Studies website in time for their next conference. So, very good award to have won. All right. So next question. Okay, so we were uh, at the one with Chris Petit, and we had talked about time-altering conditions. So we are now to uh, Bryn, Bin Prewer. Can we use active support to build structures with a much higher tensile strength so that we could build structures like banks, orbitals, and ring worlds? Hmm. Um, I don't really think there's going to be any zone for doing that. We did talk about doing that in the you know, Wing Wars episode. The idea is, how do we fake something that's got a strength that is just far beyond anything that even graphene can make? And the way you would do that is by making a really big, thick, non-spinning or very slowly spinning ring, potentially a counter-rotating ring, and then inside it a much thinner ring that you actually put your habitat on. So think about how enormously huge a ring ward actually is, or a bank's orbital, or 200 orts for a bank's orbital, or more, and ring ward a million orts. Think about something that big, that's a tiny little inside rotating gasket, practically, of a gigantic hub that is a slow-moving uh, counterweight to it, basically. And on that, you might have a magnetic cushion, and that's what's keeping it in place, and to kind of get around having to use tensile strength. Uh, can you do that? Yes. Would you do that? Um, potentially, you might have a big you know, hub, we'll call it the outside bit, that counterweight that was basically tanks full of, you know, hydrogen, helium, or dark matter, something you really can't build civilizations out of, and which is very numerous. So that is where you might do that at, and then your actual, you know, size might be a ring ward, it might be a bank orbital, both those occupy a kind of a sweet spot of, of radius, uh, or you might do something in between that had to do with your actual ratio of useless matter, e.g. hydrogen, helium, and dark matter, to useful construction matter, e.g. carbon, oxygen, iron, etc. Jack Mar says, which will come first in human history, a moon base or a Mars base? We have an episode titled Moon Base versus Mars Base. <laughs> um, or was it maybe it was Moon see Force versus Mars Force? For so the full, see that episode full uh, length in about, answer. Um, yeah, I guess it'd be a month and a half till that comes out. Two months. Sometime in August, I think, or July. Haran Ibru asks me a question. He says, living with Isaac for so long, have I learned a lot? Absolutely. I'm transported to new worlds every day. Uh, Feral. Hi, Isaac. How large would interstellar spaceships have to be? Potentially. Um, a lot of folks think you could make them basically the size of a pin. We've talked about that as, as the small end of things, um, and we'll get back to that in a second. Others would say that you have to do it the size of a planet, and those are your two kind of far away big sizes. Do you have to transport a planet or a solar system to really move between star systems as a stable ecology, or could you use something so small that it was basically just a micro-sized hard drive with nothing but uh, you know atomic level storage, but copies of minds and artificial intelligence on it, um, and um, you know somewhere in between there we'd say, an O'Neill cylinder was probably, to my opinion, the on the big side of what you would actually need to send to have a reasonably complete ecology, especially if stuff frozen. Uh, see your episode exporting Earth in the uh, generation ship series for that. On the small end. Uh, you know, we can talk about a neo-sized spaceship that was really popular with a lot of technological singularity era stuff in the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, here's this tiny little, you know, artificial intelligence on a robot that's got a couple of universal assemblers on it. And it got trashed while it was traveling between solar systems because interstellar dust and radiation is, um, is you know, very, very non-discriminating in what it likes to wreck. 
And if your system is that small, um, you have no radiation shielding. You know, that's all about distance. Radiation shielding is all about the idea that a very sensitive object can be surrounded a lot of stuff that's basically unsensitive being smashed around. And you need that layer. And I would generally say your smaller size, then it's probably in the area of a meter. But then keep in mind about stuff like universal assemblers. If I got tiny little machines that can go build more of themselves, so they only need to launch something the size of a needle or a finger or a meter across, uh, and they can go to another solar system and build a whole new civilization off of that. I'd also use those exact same machines to go take apart a few million, you know, megatons of random asteroids that we don't need here, that we have tons of. Just take apart one out of a, you know, a million of those and send out whole armadas of ships instead to the nearby neighboring solar systems. So, you know, you don't send out a von Neumann probe to other solar systems, you send it out in your own solar system first. And that means you get away with very big ships. Isaac Bordeaux, welcome back. He says, I know you do not think alien civilizations are very common. If you could give a rough estimate, how far away do you think is the closest alien civilization? Um, I mean, I'm kind of on the fence about it anyway. My, my general philosophy being, based on what I can see, I think it's more likely than not that there's not any advanced civilizations out there within a billion light years of us. I'd say there's a 50-50 odds of that. Anything beyond that, you really can't talk to. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't have any even inside our own Hubble value. Um, and there's assumptions there. There are all those big things of, is there a, a perpetual energy motion machine? Can you have a faster than light? Uh, do we live in a simulation? All of those completely throw that whole question on the edge. See the Fermi Paradox series for details, but the Dyson Dilemma to me is the big one on that. That says, why well, you can't be having these civilizations anywhere nearby because there's just no sign of them. Camera air. Right. Um, while we're messing with the camera. I hope my audio is still going on with that. It is. <sighs> that is really irritating. Would you like this camera? <laughs> no. Let's go with this one for the moment. Okay. Seems we've got to see about 10 minutes. DT Finham says, which industries do you expect growing the most in the next three decades? Are there any companies that you are interested in? Which space industries or was it just industries? It just didn't specify. Which industries? Um, I always feel inclined to say cryptocurrency because somebody ever, everyone either really loves it or really hates it. Um, <laughs> um, uh, and the carrots went again, didn't it? Yeah. Let's bring that one over here and we'll switch over to that. Keep going with that. Anyway, while, while Sarah's bringing the camera over, I hope everyone can still hear me. Um, we, uh, in terms of industries that we're getting bigger, I think the computer's about maxed out in terms of hard drives, hardware, or even silver stuff like that's probably going away. And um, sometimes I hate technology. Let's go ahead and switch that over. <laughs> okay. So we have a camera on there now, and, uh, yeah, there we go. There. Hi. Hello. <laughs> We're going to transport you to outer space. Is that okay. good? Okay. Technical issues. Again, for anyone who's just tuning in, we recently relocated uh, our, uh, our um, what you call it? like we were still unpacking this afternoon. Yeah, there are actually all a bunch of boxes here, so we've got the camera around. Uh, studio. And it's back. Okay, that's just weird. <laughs> I would try to keep that there-ish. Are you doing a, another 
twist and spin. This is what they do in outer space when they're uh, on those space shuttles. You know, you view the camera through a rotating lens, and it allows you to see many different angles. So we got to do a nice camera rotation there. Big industries for the next, was it decade or 30 years? Just ones that you're interested in. Oh, okay. Um, hmm. <laughs> Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, Facebook. Um, no, I think that the big new industry is probably going to be in metamaterials in terms of something that's a completely new sector. Probably metamaterials and hopefully uh, more space-based research for now. But I think space-based research and maybe tourism give a real chance to blossom in the next couple of decades. Tommy Vask says, the first casualty in outer space in this new era. When and how do you think it will happen, and what will be the most likely repercussions for space programs at that time? Unfortunately, yeah, with the last happen. casualties, the repercussion on space programs was big, yeah. nobody can go. <laughs> Um, you know, when when any of these things blow up, what we do is kind of ground the whole fleet. Uh, and some people say that's being overly cautious, but um, you kind of look at this from a governmental angle. Someone says, we want to send people to the moon or Mars. And someone says, okay, what does this actually accomplish? And one of the big selling points at the end is not going to really be scientific research if you're just sending people there for a couple of weeks because a robot really could do that better in terms of actually picking up your samples. A big factor in that is going to be prestige. And, uh, you know, the ability to done it first, right? And a lot of nations like the idea of being the ones who do that. What you don't want to do is be the country that has not prestige, but a gigantic state funeral when you lose somebody that way. Um, we're going to lose more people in space. Uh, in the future, the vast majority of people who die will die in space, hopefully. Because hopefully that will be where most people live. But to get there, we still don't want to be reckless. And it is always kind of that back and forth between... Um, you know, are we being overly cautious or are we being overly reckless? And I suspect we will probably, uh, this decade, we're hoping to see an awful lot of manned vessels, commercial manned vessels from from SpaceX, from Blue Origins, from um, Virgin Galactic going up into space, and hopefully more. Uh, we're going to see more from the U.S., from Russia, from China, from ESA, and from many more. They're all going to be trying to send people into space this decade. It's going to be great. We'll probably send more people in this upcoming decade than in the entire history of space travel combined. Uh, and if we are lucky, no one will die. But uh, it, I, I would not keep my fingers crossed on that, sadly. I saw a comment earlier asking whether or not you had to make a donation to get your question answered. The no, answer is no. no <laughs> but we uh, definitely appreciate those donations as they help to keep the studio Improving the, the camera is a uh, case in point, but improving <laughs> our technological apparatus as well mm -hmm. as paying for all of this heady knowledge that you've collected over the years. And so, I want to give a shout out to Void for their super chat. Uh, he has a question I've heard strange matter could generate power when bombarded with neutrons and maybe enough to be used as a ship drive. What are your thoughts? Um. I say first that I, I, I've never had a problem with that camera. We've had that thing for like a year, but I guess it probably is time to... Uh, anyway, um, Strange Matter has properties we don't really know about yet because we have only ever made a little tiny bit of it, i.g. one or two atoms at a time, in a lab. I don't know that Strange Matter should really interact with a neutron specifically differently than it would a proton, for instance. 
Um, though I'd have to actually think about what these specific properties of the strange quark are at the moment in terms of charge. Um, we should be able to build stuff. There are six types of quarks, right? Up, down, top, bottom, because one creative and strange and charm. Um, and uh, we should be able to build stuff out of strange charm and top and bottom quarks, not just up and down. Ideally, it would seem weird for the universe to have, you know, six types of quarks and only use two of them ever and have no use for the other ones. Uh, I don't know how you'd actually be producing. I suppose the assumption there would be you have a big amount of matter-antimatter annihilation between the strange quark and the neutron, um, but uh, or at least the strange atom, well, it presumably has one strange quark in it and an up and a down atom, in it, for instance. But that's the only thing I can think of. So that's all I've, I can think of that would actually cause a reaction you could drive a ship on. Uh, we have a question from Ira Zwan, and thank you for your super chat. He says hello. Isaac Arthur, will there be another collaboration with John Michael Godier? Uh, almost certainly at some point. I would say um, John is one of those people who I just love working with. Uh, so there was, there was a lot of generally decent and great people I've had a chance to work with ever since the show's taken off in size, but um, John's probably still my favorite to actually work with. He's just fun to talk to. So is his crew, too. So... Salman Sulman, people often say that nuclear fission power is always 20 years away. Do you think that there's actually a real possibility, or is it just a pipe dream? Uh, yes. I was just thinking, in terms of collabs, uh, I'm working on a script right now with What If Alt History, um, and uh, hopefully that will be coming out in the next month or so. So that's the current collabs going on. Um, we have this comment that comes up about fusion it's gotten to be a bit of a truism when people say that loosely speaking what happened was we discovered the very basic things of atoms around the turn of last century we started discovering what you know protons and electrons and neutrons were and that you know alpha particles which are helium atoms without ions you know electrons in them beta particles electrons and positrons gamma rays and all that stuff was in the 30s, in the 40s, you know, we got a reactor, very basic atomic pile walking, and we got the bomb. And then a few years later, we got the fusion bomb. So everyone looking at that said, well, we're probably one generation away. That's a loose number you give for a new technology. We're a generation away from probably having fusion reactors. Considering how quickly it went from knowing what an atom was to having an atomic reactor to an atomic bomb to a fusion bomb, hey, a fusion reactor is probably just a generation or 20 years away. That's it. And then some folks have occasionally said that a little bit more optimistically in like the 70s. Well, it looked like we might have some motion in that direction, but no one's been going around saying it was going to be 20 years for sure. We didn't know. Um, it makes sense it was one generation away. Is it possible? Yes. But, you know, for my part, I think it's time for us to move past that use of that. You know, it's the fusion technology 20 years from now and always will be. I don't think it's helpful. Um, and I hate to admit, but I start regarding it as one of those statements like, Iceland is green and Greenland is icy, or in, in, you know, in, in Europe they call it soccer football. It's like, ah, okay, that doesn't help. Everybody knows that. We'll get fusion. We will get it. How economically viable it will be, you know, we keep making new improvements towards it every day. Um, when will it become economically viable? Hopefully sooner than later. But we don't know yet when. It might be 20 years, it might be a century, it might be a decade. It's slow, though, because with fusion research, we typically have to build the entire installation, uh, run the experiments, then get 
analyze analysts of the that and then get funny for another generation of experiments build that whole thing up and do it again so every little thing we need to learn has this big time gap of requirement of just lots of new stuff we'll eventually get hit close enough that we'll be able to pin it down but that might not be the next generation of, of uh, fusion reactors or it might be we'll have to see if you want to go faster, encourage your government to spend more money on fusion research, run multiple projects at a time, and, uh, I mean, I'd say it, bootstrap it by saying spend twice as much on production to get done in a quarter of the time or something like that. That's the best advice I could give on that. don't know if that's wise, though. Jacob says, what is your preferred fu fuel for chemical rockets in the near term? He likes LO2 or LH2 as it can be stored as water, which has more uses than just fuel and is less explodey than hydrocarbons. Well, the, the problem with using liquid hydrogen and oxygen as a fuel is you actually can't store it as water if you want to use it as a fuel um, because you have to spend more energy to crack it back into hydrogen and oxygen and you're going to get out of it. Um, everybody likes to use liquid hydrogen. Hydrogen is awesome. Uh, it's the most energy reactive one you've got. And hopefully with the new generation of graphene line tanks, for instance, we can actually store the stuff usefully. Um, but it's a pain to handle, right? Um, a lot of folks don't know that you have a very complex thing about jet fuel or rocket fuel. Rocket fuel is, in most cases, um, propane and kerosene. You know, kerosene, sorry. Um, you can make propane rockets, too. Kerosene's the big one. Just kerosene. Usually a little bit more refined in terms of getting impurities out of it. Um, that's the one that you probably use the most. And liquid hydrogen is the one that is most effective in terms of best speed for minimum fuel but it's hard to store and work with so we want to thank all of the folks that are subscribing it's uh great to see your names popping up on the screen thank you to them and the next question is from another isaac how will virtual reality technology progress within the next few decades huh. you know i was growing up the only other isaac i heard of was asthma <laughs> How will virtual reality technology progress in the next decades? When I was a kid, uh, we a had like a Nintendo, Super Nintendo's follow-up was a VR headset, I think it was a wireframe, um, and it was horrible and bulky. At the same time, we had TV shows that were constantly saying, oh, there was, all of them were virtual reality set. They used like the holodeck in Star Trek. Um, probably the worst piece of technology they ever put in the Star Trek universe, the holodeck. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> It's cool. It's cool, but it lets you do too many... They have so many episodes that are basically set on the holodeck. you got to explore in space, and the holodeck's what's interesting. You do <laughs> holodeck episodes back on Earth, right? Um, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. But, right, that's why you're out exploring space. <laughs> Not the holodeck. Uh, Voyager, I think. Star Trek Voyager is the one who overdid it with the holodeck, I thought. Um, but... Uh, Oh, virtual reality. How's virtual reality progressing in the next uh, couple of decades? So, so not we had a lot holodeck. of books in that were cyberpunk in the eighties. You don't want a virtual reality to become a holodeck. Yeah. You guys are gonna have to excuse me again. New studio just moved, still unpacking, camera burnt out or whatever it did. <laughs> and we had to move at the last minute, so um let's see. Will virtual reality get to be more commonly in use? There's an Oculus headset right there. I don't use it too often myself because I have to wear contact lenses when I use it. Um, and some people love them. Uh, to me, that technology is still not entirely there. I want something probably closer to like a pair of glasses that I could comfortably wear to really be able to do 
virtual reality. Is it going to be out there? Oh yeah, it's going to be improving heavily. I expect to see a VR headset probably get to be about as common as PCs were in the 90s in about the same way too um, in terms of utilization. Most houses will probably have a VR headset from one manufacturer or another, whether it's a smartphone-enabled one or one more complex, in the next few years, honestly, for the U.S. But I would say augmented reality is probably the one that's going to really hit more in terms of miniaturizing and getting things inside glasses and so forth. Marvin Hall says, I'm a longtime fan. I have a question that's been on my mind for a while now. Would it be possible for a form of alien life to develop that could utilize the CMB for photosynthesis? Um, no. Maybe. Uh, um, one of the things we talk about in Black Hole is the end of time, um, in Black Hole Farming, Civilization at the end of time, is the idea of living in a universe where ambient radiation uh, from the CMB or other things like that is actually what you're feeding your civilization on. Not the ambient radiation, but black holes that are around that temperature. Um, the CMB is in the microwave range, so in theory, you could actually run something on it. We, you know, we talk about doing power satellites using microwaves, um, so it's in that frequency. Um, I can't remember what exact frequency 2.7 kelvins at. That's the temperature of those of the CMB right now. Problem is, every part of the universe is exactly that temperature. You can't do work in bath water, right? All of our thermodynamic principles run on the idea that you need a hot and cold reservoir or you need something higher density as a water to really work off of. You can't do that there. It's because it's the same amount everywhere. You could potentially make something that was impermeable to the CMB that run off of, but yeah, think about the amount of power you're talking about when you're when you're dealing with the CMB at the local level. Um, it's ridiculously tiny. Uh, I think you, we found that like, to make a Machioska brain that would be able to convert itself so it was big enough to be actually in the background of the CMB, you know, Dyson spheres are invisible because they're the same temperature as the CMB or in that range, they'd have to be, you know, I think something like a tenth of a light year across uh, to get to the point where they were doing a Dyson spheres level of energy or maybe it was even more than that, maybe ten light years across. Very tiny. I don't think you'd run anything useful off of that level of power that was naturally occurring. So. The Baca that shoes says, is apparent time travel through a wormhole instant or would there be a delay oh yeah depends on the type of wormhole this is you hear a lot of talk about how wormholes work uh when people are either doing science fiction or discussing science of wormholes um uh there are several different versions of wormholes in theory and they all operate very differently kind of the classic one that's the sci-fi not the sci-fi one the one that lucy allowed under general relativity that people most commonly look at that has typically got a requirement of several hundred stellar masses uh, to actually produce it. It's a gigantic black hole, and it takes months, potentially, to travel down through the thing. But you shave, you know, potentially millions of years off your voyage, so. Um, wormholes have long floats. They take a while to transit. Um, Stargate SG-1, probably a little bit more of a better view than we see in other ones where it's like a, like a window or gateway that you step through. But they're all versions of the concept that, that include those. Question from Chili Emerald. Thank you for your super chat. Would you have any opinions on aliens creating star systems out of gas giants like brown dwarfs, but we smash them until they make a star? Say that one more time. Would you have any opinions on aliens creating star systems out of giant gases, or I'm sorry, gas giants, maybe I read that incorrectly, 
out of gas giants like brown dwarfs, but we smash them till they make a star. Mm, you can... Brown dwarfs don't really have enough mass to be real stars, so you have to get in that red dwarf range would be handy, but you could smash one down. You know, I think if you if you did crush one up, we talked about doing that in Summer on Jupiter. Uh, actually, see the episode Summer on Jupiter Making Suns for discussion of this in detail. But yeah, you could potentially compress a regular brown dwarf of brown dwarf mass to the point where it was doing fusion. Um, the whole concept of why a star needs a certain amount of mass to fuse, to produce light, is that it needs that much shoving down out from its own gravity. Uh, you could compress something, though. Uh, you put a shell around and just squish. Um, the other alternative, of course, is to dump like a white dwarf or a neutron star into one. Although, I, it's kind of a scale issue. You'd say, let's drop a white dwarf or a neutron star into a brown dwarf. And it's kind of like say, let's drop this cup into a pool uh, without realizing that the pool is actually much less massive than the cup. It's just size-wise, one's bigger. Um, it's really the neutron star that's eating the brown dwarf or something like that to start fusion back up again. But that works or causes supernova or both. We've got a lot of questions from Isaacs today. Today we have another question from Isaac Baroa. Mm -hmm. How many complete Earth clones could we fit into our solar system, assuming we can add mass to planets, convert gas giants to stars, and add red dwarfs to the outer solar system? Okay. Um, I think this is often a discussion of like an ultimate solar system thing. Um, the most planets you can stuff into a solar system um, if you want to start taking liberties with solar system, um, uh, one second. Um, Doing a little mental calculation. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. Fast math. A million, a billion billion, about one billion billion planets into a very extended solar system. Uh, if you were doing things like putting a, a big, nice central black hole that you rotate a bunch of red dwarf clusters around, each of which had planets lined up. And uh, the reason I get that number is because that's when you start getting close to what you call the Borch planet level, where you have to start worrying about everything being stuck inside a black hole, simply because it's not dense, but it's so massive. Um, so there you go. There's your upper end. Borch planet scale. <laughs> Question from Ming Zong. Just wonder if there's a plan for colonizing mini-Neptune or super-Earth, such as the hypothetical ninth planet, and what would the pros and cons be? I'm just going to go ahead and say it. The ninth planet is Neptune. Neptune. I think it said mini-Neptune, yeah. mini if I read it yes, correctly. Yes, but the mini-Neptune is a type of planet. The ninth planet is Neptune, and Pluto is planet 10. Most times, sometimes 9. Pluto is a planet. Uh, um... Well, it's, yeah, because um, Ceres would be the planet one at that point. I guess you could add some of the other asteroids in. They used to be, the original four asteroids used to be considered planets uh, until we found other ones. Okay, a mini-Neptune is colonizable, so is a super-Earth. They're always going to be colonizable. The question is whether or not you'd actually want to. Um, in terms of terraforming them. You know, if you're a channel regular, you already know how we can pretty much colonize anything. We've talked about colonizing stars directly and black holes directly. Um, it all depends on how artificial you're willing to get and what exactly you're colonizing it with. Um, you know, if you actually want to set up something like a human Earth-like settlement on the place, in the real world, not like a virtually simulated world running on the thing as a power source, um, for a mini-Neptune, 
That actually might be a fun thing to explore for an episode, though. I don't think we've actually done a Super Wolves episode either. Name it's idea. doable. Let's let's we'll, we'll think about maybe doing an episode on that. Hey Isaac, would you ever consider doing a video on both the physics and possible technological applications of topological defect phenomena like magnetic monopoles and cosmic strings? Cosmic strings are something I haven't heard about in quite a long time. <laughs> uh, they were very popular in the I guess it'd be the nineties too, um, but late eighties. Um, kind of a, a instead of a point-like black hole, for those of you who aren't familiar with them, because they kind of fallen out of common discussion, uh, instead of a tiny little point of zero dimensions in all directions, the cosmic strings were like a one-dimensional black hole, big long line. And there was a two-dimensional version people discussed too. Magnetic monopoles... I worry about when we start looking at things, be it string theory or be it magnetic monopoles, and say, well, our theory and our mass says this thing that we don't observe must exist, so we have to figure out where it does exist, or why, you know, maybe we should be focused on figuring out why it doesn't, or what's wrong with our theory. But, um, I mean, it'd be interesting to look at, well, we almost don't discuss topology anyway, and I'm pretty rusty on it, but it might be worth doing an episode of magnetic monopoles or cosmic strings, yeah. Couple new ideas. <laughs> um, we never want to have topic ideas for the show. That's right. <laughs> And every live stream brings up new ones. So a uh, question from Alan Jiang. What is the hardest physics and ma or math class that you took in college? Um, officially, polish differential equations. Um, if you decide you want to major in physics, you will be getting a minor in mathematics minimum. And a lot of universities, you can take pretty much one extra class and get a BA, a Bachelor of Results in Math, or a BS, but not, not that much harder effort, too, because... You need a lot of math to go into physics. If you choose not to do these things and you go into grad school, you will still end up having to take many more classes, either by auditing them or by just being handed a book and reading them. But um, I, over there, got a whole big list of books. On the top shelf is the math ones, but the big light's at. If you can read the titles, you can figure out which one you think is hardest out of that group. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think PD was the last math class I officially took, though. Podunk says, is it just me, or is Isaac's speech impediment basically gone, or do I just listen to him a lot? I did take a speech therapy uh, for like three years. Uh, I stopped doing that probably about four months after we got married. Um, screw up gone so much that it was getting hard to schedule anything. Um, I would never think of my speech impediment as gone, though, uh, especially during the live stream. You probably don't notice as much when we're recording because I tend to be a lot slower or scripted. I really focus on things and do takes, and I'm not seeing anything very clearly. If you're only used to listening to the episodes and you're listening to the live stream, you're probably catching me mumble sometimes or speak very quickly. Um, and uh, I would imagine the speech impediment is probably still much more noticeable then. And for anybody who catches on board or embracing nuclear power episodes, you'll get to hear me probably flood the word nuclear a bunch of times, too. <laughs> I do think it's improved a lot, it though. Probably has. Yeah. Thank you for noticing the improvement. Thank you. Yeah, and it actually was much better than when I was in my early twenties too. Um, all right, so we got time for I think probably one more question. Oh, I got several more here. Okay, if well, you, go if ahead. Got... We'll rapid fire them. Okay, rapid fire. Canadian says, Isaac, how massive does something need to be to have its own gravity? One. Wow, very tiny. Um, I would say less than a quark. Though that gets in that quantum gravity issue, so it is debatable. Atomic scale, though. Rory, not my last name, says, How likely are large star systems with several habitable planets, such as the 34 Tari system from Firefly and Saranus from the Battlestar Galactica? Ah. 
see our episode of Colonizing Giant Stars. Actually, pretty decently likely they'd be habitable, but probably not very likely they'd be around long enough to have um, civilizations world around them naturally. <laughs> we got asked if we were in outer space. That must have been when the camera was flying around Everyone's the room. in outer space. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Carlos says, on a trip to Pluto, if you could bring three TV or streaming service shows with you, what would those shows be? <laughs> Star Curiosity Trek. Stream, Nebula, and... Uh, that's no fair. You just picked the <laughs> Curiosity Stream, Nebula, and another one. Uh, um, Amazon, Amazon yeah. Amazon's actually a sponsor of the show through Audible, so yes. Those three. <laughs> um, the last super chat of the day that we're going to give a shout out to is from Dobre Videt. Thank you for your super chat. And he says, When will we see the first murder in space? Hopefully, no time soon, but I would guess. Uh, I'll do a Cain and Abel analogy they are probably within a decade of at least a dozen people living up in orbit. Cinnabal says, do you have an opinion on Ian M. Banks, the culture series, and his take on an evolved civilization? If you're a Star Trek fan, Ian M. Banks' culture series is a very fun one to read because it, it's, it's, it's a nice follow-up. Uh, the late, great Ian M. Banks. Um, I am most fond of his, uh, his I'd say the three novels I like by him, four novels by him that I like the most, uh, Consider Flavus, um, uh, I love these ones, I can't remember the names, Player of Games, Accession, and Book Three, the one with the chair. Everyone's read the book, we know what it is, I just can't think of the name by now. Very good author. <laughs> so. Paul Rome, I get that the collision of the Milky Way and Andromeda won't result in many individual stellar collisions, but what about the central black holes? Will they collide, and what effects would that have? Eventually. Um, following up on Ian Banks real quick, uh, I would not consider his work to be terribly realistic from a scientific perspective, uh, but it's a great read anyway. Um, we probably need to start moving away from the idea of Andromeda and the Milky Way colliding. That may be the force that does that, but... The Milky Way has been eating smaller galaxies up for a long time and will gain Andromeda and vice versa along with everything else in this area we believe in the next 3 to 10 billion years that's going to be where a lot of that's going down uh, until we are just left with that one big mega galaxy um, left alone by itself as anything else expands at the Hubble horizon, um, cosmological horizon. Um, that will have very few stellar collisions initially, but all those remnants will eventually hit. You don't have big black holes that don't eventually merge. They will ring down eventually and, and, and collide. That may take several trillion years, possibly several, what's the number after a trillion? Quadrillion years, but it should happen eventually. Last question of the day from mm -hmm. Big Zebra. Mm -hmm. Why is your studio an exercise in Landlord Beige? <laughs> That's in quotes. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, you know, even the big black holes in the centers of galaxies are only about, you know, orbit of Pluto kind of size or smaller. Um, so it's not like they're very likely to collide. Uh, what colors? Beige. I think it's because, you know, the studio is so much the same color as the last studio that if it wasn't for the curtains, people wouldn't know we had moved. Is except it? for the technological difficulties. Oh, well, beige is the new gray. That's right. <laughs> because the contractor will come in here yet and put doors on. So. And then we can paint. Actually, uh, it's because I, I decided that beige was a much better light reflecting color than gray. Mm -hmm. And we wanted it to be more cheerful. But then this one was already painted this shade. Yeah, this was the shade we came in at. We haven't painted yet. Um, I'm not sure I would either. Um, and the other place, Sarah did actually pick out all the colors for the previous studio. So uh, I guess 
is that the question we'll close you on? <laughs> did, did you want a different question to Let's close Let's do one on? more. <laughs> uh, okay. We had to edit out the first two minutes of the video from being quiet anyway. Someone said, shouldn't drillion come before quadrillion? Which one? Drillion. Drillion? I don't even know what drillion is. I think trillion then... Then trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, sextillion, septillion, octillion, nonillion. And at that point, they I just think made that's got to count for some sort of higher math course. Yeah, I, there's also the Googleplex, but I guess the word Google comes from, if nobody saw us, but or the other way around. Some made up number. I don't know. Jillion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> um, we had a super chat here from Sapphire Elf. Thank you. And I am. Just scrolling to see, we also have a super chat from Mostly Folders, a little bit of everything. And he says, thanks for what you do. When do you think new battery tech is likely to be more common than today's 18650? <sighs> Sorry, we'll end on a stumper. Hmm. Um, what do you think battery tech's going to get better? Yeah. Every day. Um, when will it get better enough so that I can probably, I'm assuming whatever got the camera say was the false sat power supplies put in there in the fake you know for the fake battery thing um so i could just run on a power plug um graphene batteries are probably gonna be the next one that's a real step up or one that runs on kind of the same basic principle but uh i would say the lithium ion ones are so much better than like even nickel cadmium that we had um honestly like a decade back was still the big battery for rechargeability um if anyone remembers the old, old days of going to Radio Shack and uh, buying batteries and having to run through like five or six double D batteries just to run a stereo for a while, I can appreciate how much more battery technology has improved in the last couple of decades. But it's still at the point where it's weaker than chemical fuels, right, in terms of density. And that's going to be the one that's the real big paradigm shift for battery technology. Uh, again, it's your know, portable power energy episode. Um, but uh, when you get to the point that batteries, rechargeable batteries, can start carrying a power density similar, an energy density similar to what we see in chemical fuels, uh, or hopefully even better, that's when you see the complete shift over to an electronic economy. And hopefully sooner than later. I guess on that note, we can go ahead and close on out. For everyone who actually came in and joined us for the silent first three minutes of the episode and the various camera power glitches here at our new studio, um, thank you so much for bearing with us through today's episode. And we will see you in a month again uh, for the next live stream where we have new technical glitches and hopefully fewer of them. And for everybody else, we'll see you on Thursday. <laughs> so that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also, you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website, IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.